This. This is, this is diversified, diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. Hey, it's Kellen, and today you guys are going to hear how this young lady, this woman from Seattle, took her entrepreneurial dream to another level. She's focusing on business-to-business sales and helping entrepreneurs like myself, like herself, find vendors. I have Vivian Lim. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Thank you for coming on and open to have such a dialogue uh, and, you know, let me know how Seattle is opening up slowly, um, but surely. It, it, it's, been a, it's been a slow drip. Uh, people are very squeamish around each other, but we're slowly starting to see businesses open up. Uh, I was just talking, we were just talking a little bit earlier before the show, how uh, just our YMCA nearby is starting to open. Uh, it's, it's, they're planning to but they're going to be at like one quarter capacity. I got to reserve in advance. You know, if you go out into the street in Seattle, everyone's wearing a mask. Everyone's super far away from each other. Uh, there isn't that much traffic, you know, thankfully, because that's always a problem here in Seattle. But yeah, people are, people are very cautious. People are very scared. Um, most pools are closed. Uh, most restaurants are empty. So it's, it's kind of weird. Like Seattle is usually the boom time when people come with their families and they're enjoying the sun, but we're not seeing as much of that out here. Yeah, and just leaving there and relocating to Florida, that was the part where I'm like, wait, we're going to leave during the best part of the year, but you can't really enjoy it like, you know, you're used to. So here in Florida where, you know, masks are not, they're not mandatory everywhere. Um, it, it's, it's a culture shock, but um, hopefully they'll wise up and say it's just the mask. But let's talk about beads. Um, talk about your company, what made you say there's a need for this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in my free time, I try to invest in real estate. And there was a time when I was on vacation, I was literally going surfing, and I got this terrible phone call from my gardener who happened to be at the wrong property. He saw water flowing out of my, one of my garages, and he's like, you got a problem. I said, oh my God, can you please go fix it for me? He opened up the garage, and then realized there was black mold up to five feet up from the floor. And this is only like an eight foot ceiling. So more than 50% of the walls were covered in black mold and mildew. Apparently the water heater exploded. And he's like, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, well, shut off the water. And then I had to basically enter my vacation. I could not get a flight back to the mainland. And I started to just mass call every single water remediation company in the Pacific Northwest. It took me about 87 calls. When I finally got somebody, they were willing to do the work for me on their own time while things were going bad. I couldn't get the tenant to move in. They had to gut literally the entire um, garage as well as part of the bottom floor of the house and replace the water heater. But then even though he did all this work, the house still wasn't rentable because it had no walls. It had no carpet. The furniture was ruined. So I had to do the exact same thing a couple weeks later, trying to find a general contractor. And then again, to find somebody to find all the furniture and get in there. So I realized, you know what, this is super painful. When you have a problem and you're not a big business, what do you do? Who are you going to call? How are you going to know whether or not they're going to be jerking your chain or overcharging for the services? You don't. And so that's when I realized, hey, there's a, there's a business model here. So we started in 2019. 
we now have, we can now reach 140,000 businesses across the U.S. in real time at the drop of a hat. And it's great. We're super excited. We have um, lots of different professions and verticals with us, primarily right now in marketing, technology, uh, software development, manufacturing, finance, property management, and we're really excited. Um, we feel like there's a huge potential here to really sort of disrupt the market. And especially in times of COVID, when you can't meet people at trade shows, you can't network normally, this is a great way for you to save time and just asynchronously deal with, uh, with uh, opportunities. And so we're really providing continuous deal flow for lots of small businesses all across the US. And what we're super proud of is 63% of the businesses that we deal with are all disenfranchised socially. We're talking minority owned, women owned, veteran, LGBTQ plus, you know, we're, we're helping um, companies that normally don't have access to great opportunities. And so we're, we're really happy to be helping opportunity this way. And so with that, somebody will say, hey, well, you know, Thumbtack does something like that. Can you tell the difference between what you're doing? Because I can tell you folks, the interface is a oh, lot yeah. different than, than Thumbtack. And so let them know what, what makes you, you know, unique. Well, so a lot of these other sort of job board sites are kind of like fire and forget. They send you the opportunity and then they just charge you for that money. And so you're basically putting up a lot of risk. If you just buy every single one of these leads that come through, you're spending anywhere from 35 to maybe $150 per opportunity. But that's not sales in hand. That's just getting somebody's phone number and their email address, right? So why would you put up that much money and not get not get a guarantee, right? Like that to me, that just sounds kind of crazy. And you know, formerly I'm from Google. I worked in brand advertising, and I used to think that that was totally acceptable. Like, hey, we're giving you brand awareness and opportunity. But the truth is, the only people who can afford to spend that way are the Fortune 500. You know, they're the ones who can spend easily seven, eight figures a month on advertising and making sure people know who you are aware. A small business can't afford to do that. You're going to go under. And on average in the U.S., most businesses fail within 18 months of starting. And that's really heartbreaking. I don't know about you, but I can count, uh, you know, tens upon tens of uh, hundreds of um, friends and family who started businesses and just weren't able to survive that first year because they couldn't deal with a cold start problem. Well, we think that we've solved it. And to, to add to that, we have um, a direct integration to the federal government. We have access to over 700,000 uh, contracts funded by federal dollars. We're talking $960 billion that need to get spent every single year because the government says we have to spend it. And what, how amazing would it be to put that into the hands of small business owners? And that's what we're doing. Now that would be awesome. The, the problem, and you know, my consulting firm is an 8A firm. The problem that many small businesses have, and I have, um, it, it took me a while to, to learn, but I learned it in Seattle, even though for almost a decade prior, I was getting government funds, but not knowing that like real ins and outs is, mm -hmm. you know, finding the RFP or seeing the RFQ where you really need to kind of see the RFQ first. So right. then you can say, oh, okay, I can kind of maybe shape this and tell someone, hey, make that kind of for me. And then finding it, so you got to go hunt the goal, then you got to go mine the goal, then you got to go refine the goal. Do you have anything in the plans of helping small businesses making it affordable? Because like you said, you don't have a lot of money to give someone thousands of dollars. We know there's companies that will take thousands of dollars to do all that for you in hopes of you getting a contract, but anything to help, you know, that's a problem? 
Yeah. So I think there's, I think there's two parts to what you're describing. So the first part is knowing how to inject yourself into the government process. And working with government is in fact very complicated because it's a very long sales cycle, lots of steps because the government has to appear to be impartial. And so they sort of try to syndicate all that information, but they're doing, they're doing a, a kind of a half big job of it. They do it in snippets and it's very asynchronous, but done in a way that you don't even know where to look or if you've got the entire picture. And so, yes, I think part of it is understanding what are the different phases in government from uh, RFI, request for information, to RFQ, request for qualification, uh, to RFP, request for proposal, and understanding like when to inject yourself. And the sooner you find out, uh, the sooner you can start to adjust your strategy and also, you also need to start developing ties to the government, right? The government is still very old school. They sort of like to do things kind of like an, almost like an enterprise fashion sort of way. So you have to get your foot in the door early. So how these sort of solves for this is number one, because of our direct integration, we can notify you as soon as there's new and updated information. Uh, we have like on any given day, you will see on, uh, on these requests, there's like, you know, maybe two attachments, maybe three attachments. And then six hours later, there's 30 attachments, there's 80 attachments. We're keeping you updated in real time. So one is just sort of knowing how the problem space is changing and then being able to adjust your proposal. The second thing is knowing who to contact. So whenever you use the Beast platform, we can get you in direct contact with the actual project owner. So you can start to develop that relationship with them. So I think in these two ways, you can at least start to understand the problem space. And, and a lot of it is a lot of practice. But we also have people in our network who are specialized in bidding on government contracts and they know how to structure these deals depending on the agency, depending on the size of the RFP, if there's other constraints, like if it's a set aside for, um, for small business or it's a set aside for, I don't know, the Indian uh, economic uh, area or the small set aside for veteran, there's different ways that you need to pitch. And so growing your network and finding these types of partners is, in truly, is truly important in having a sustainable business model. And, and that's a gold mine in itself for, you know, your, your business. Cause if you can just make that old school process, um, less complicated. I know I, I've sat in, I said, you know what, it's easier to be a sub and just be called kind of in the fourth quarter <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and, and say, Hey, we need you to do this because whoever we gave it to can't do it. And we need your help. And I don't mind playing Superman. But I would rather as a sub, and, and in Seattle was, was awful for this, was you don't rate your subs. There's no way a sub can get credit. So we did something with Sound Transit when the UW station and the Capitol Hill station open up. And nobody will ever know that besides me putting it on a you know, capability statement and then having to go to the person and say, hey, did he really do this? Which you know, thank God that person would say, yes, he did that. And it wasn't really the biggest job, but they needed it in that OT, not even fourth quarter. I had 48 hours to complete that, that task. So, you know, I think anything to help streamline that because government, you know, it takes 10 years to change anything in any government. Is there a video folks can go to um, even prior to joining bees, maybe on YouTube, that they can see all those capabilities and how things work. 
Yeah, absolutely. Any, any folks who kind of sign up for the beta are then taken through a full video product demo. And, you know, by all means, feel free to send us any questions or concerns that you have. We're very responsive. Um, our team, our team is, is, is across the continent where I'm on the West Coast, but we've got two members on the East Coast. We also got uh, team members based out of Amsterdam. Uh, one of our, our co-founders, Peter Alexandre, he's from Haiti. Uh, super smart guy, started his own company in Brazil. He's also, you know, uh, helping us just answer tickets and, and helping out our customers uh, on, on European time. So, you know, if you, want some, if you want somebody to kind of treat you like a mature business and to give you the respect that you deserve, um, you know, please come talk to us. We would love to hear your stories and love to figure out ways to help, uh, to help out. I honestly didn't feel that way working in enterprise. Like we were given very strict instructions on, you know, these are the people who are the most important, give them all of your time. And then everybody else is in the long tail, which are basically mom and pops, don't usually get that type of service. So we really wanna change that. We wanna give the power back to the people and, and give people real opportunities to succeed. No, that, that's awesome. And I try to you know, take um, anything that a hater may say and say, well, I tried and it took, you know, I tried to get a vendor and it, it took too long or they didn't do their job. How are, do you guys do like the damage control? Cause you know, you can go on a site like Fiverr and get almost anything done right now. And for $5, it's probably gonna look like it's $5. But yeah. people are kind of accustomed to getting things cheap. But can you talk about if there are problems like Fiverr, you can, you know, say, hey, Fiverr, I had a problem and they'll give you a credit or something. I've never had a problem on Fiverr personally but it's not my go-to, but how do you deal with, you know, any future problems that may occur? So I think what you're describing is the business model that has to do with escrow. So like Airbnb is kind of the same way, Fiverr's kind of like that, Upwork's kind of like that. They want to inject themselves into your business. And the, the reason why we don't have that model is because number one, everyone's business is different. Number two, the third party is not necessary. It, it seems like it would be helpful to have a third party arbitrate a lot of these disagreements. But the truth is, you know, if you're if you're always um, hunting for the cheapest possible price, not caring about the service level agreement, not caring about the customer service aspect of it, you're always going to end up in a place where you can get into an argument with somebody and you're just unhappy and you know you're basically burning bridges on both sides. Uh, the bees model is really different because we're letting people, you know, find them find each other on the network. And then disengaging from the network and sort of engaging in business their own way. And that requires a little bit more of that tactileness, a little bit more of that cultural sensitivity, a little bit more of that value differentiation that sometimes does cost a little bit more. But what you're hoping for when you come to these is a solution. You're not looking for like a quick, a quick ditch uh, answer, um, you know, what it done. You're hoping to build meaningful partnerships that are really going to help you grow your business. And that means you need to make a, a great fit. Are you looking for a one night fling or are you working for a long-term relationship with somebody? It's kind of like the same thing. So people are looking for that long-term relationship come to these because, you know, they want to be in business for a long time. And we all know that you can't, like, it really does take a village to raise somebody. It takes a village to, to, to create a business. And without having the right ties and the right support structure, you're never going to get there. Well, maybe not never, but it might be really super challenging. So, um, so the difference here is, Bees helps you find the people that are going to really mesh with you and your business and give you that sort of a la carte service. Figure out what is it that you need right now, but also how you're going to grow and evolve and change and hopefully get more customers. And that's really what you need to be sustainable. And I'll say too, um, you know, 
on bees, you can find a CPA and maybe you can find a CPA on Fiverr. I wouldn't recommend it, but Fiverr rules, you don't get to talk to that person. So I don't know how, so, you know, you don't, you don't have that issue folks. And it's, it, it's, it's high level. Um, with creating this, I want to get into for the entrepreneurs that, you know, they're getting beaten down by COVID and, and just the situations. When you started this, did you get all the support in the world and did you quit your job right away or how, how did that work? Because so many people, it's hard to start because they feel like I don't have support or I don't have venture capital or an angel. What was your start like? So my start was a little bit different. So I had already created, you know, enough of a nest egg so that I could survive for, for a relatively long duration and, and, and enter the market. But at the same time, you still have to be extremely frugal. And you also have to know that when you leave your day job, you have to have a good, really good plan. And so different resources that I talked to, as well as um, sort of personal network. One, a great resource is the Small Business Association. Um, they basically help small business owners sort of figure out what's what and review their business model. For me, you know, having been a product manager in enterprise for many years at Microsoft, at AWS, at, uh, at Google, you know, I already had some of that, um, some of that background knowledge, and I've already been accustomed to pitching to VPs and directors, like most of my career. So it wasn't so much the business model that was a problem for me, but I could imagine that being a problem for somebody else. The next part is to figure out a way to build, to build a business. You know, are these skills that I have or are these skills I need to lean on other people? Fortunately, I am, I am very technical. I mean, I graduated in computer engineering. I know how to build software from scratch, but I also have a lot of great partners. A lot of people in our founding team are really smart people that are also in technology, but we also have folks that are uh, like uh, Joanna. She was in um, the U.S. Army for many years, so she taught us how to navigate government. Andre, you know, understands infrastructure, helped us build out uh, components to make sure that we can grow at scale. Ahmed, He's, uh, he's like, he's like a young, one of the youngest uh, principals at Microsoft ever. And he's just a genius on wheels. Like he could just build anything once he puts his mind to it. Peter, Peter's like business development extraordinaire. He's got ties to the European monarchy. Like he just knows people, you know? So we all bring our different skill sets. But what's most important is that we all trust each other. We were friends before, we want to be friends after. We need to have a really great working relationship. And we also kind of have to agree on the goal. You know, we make decisions as a team. And we try to figure out, you know, what are the things that are really going to move the needle? And when push comes to shove, you know, we're able to kind of take that, you know, criticism in stride. You know, you have to be really humble. Uh, we all have to kind of have like a, a stake in the game. And so it's about respect, you know, and figuring out what works well as a team. And I think the next part of the entrepreneurial journey was figuring out how to get customers on board. And our technology platform does that automated outreach. Like how, how you found you, Kellen, like our system basically flagged you and said, hey, we, we need somebody who's in Florida who has these specializations and boom, we ended up in a conversation. So, you know, we really have to think comprehensively about um, what are the problems? Do we have a solution to that problem? If you don't have a solution to the problem, what's the next best thing that we can do? And ultimately it's like being on training wheels all day long. You have to kind of adjust to what the problem space is. COVID made it harder for sure. But then COVID just kind of proved our business model. Like you can't do things you did before because it wasn't efficient, but nobody else really realized how inefficient it was until it finally happened. And so we're just constantly on this evolutionary track. So going back to your first one, I think, what does it take to be a great entrepreneur? One, humility. Two, ambition. Three, great people skills. And four, 
a, a good risk for appetite. I think, you know, if you're squeamish about, you know, going out on your own and taking off the safety nets, maybe it's not a good idea. But what if you're a genius? What if you have an amazing idea that you want to bring to market? Well, you know, let's talk about that. Let's figure out ways that we can help you. And, you know, definitely reaching out to your local community, SBA chapter, super helpful. Talking to people in your neighborhood or other business owners and getting their two cents to kind of kick the tires on your business model, also really important. And so when building up that nest egg, and I'm, I'm almost thinking about, I always think about 14-year-old kids, right? 14 to 24 sometimes. And they say, well, what type of nest egg? Because if I have, you know, thousand extra dollars, can I go out on my own? Not in Seattle. <laughs> you might need, you know, you're going to need. Let me, well, let me, I'm going to tell you a little story about my family. So my family came from super working class and uh, my mom, when she grew up, she grew up with the only, like with just, just a mom, no dad, because her dad had passed away a long time ago. And uh, as a family, you know, my mom actually had to quit school just to go work. She helped her brother start up a fruit stand with just a couple of dollars. All he did was uh, buy watermelon, slice watermelon and sell it on the street. And that ended up growing um, It gave him the chops to kind of grow his business. He ended up going on to create his own um, uh, uh, technology retail store, one of the largest that was in Australia and then sold it. Her sister also kind of also had to uh, work super hard, started from basically nothing turned into one of the largest um, manufacturers of air conditioning equipment and have huge ties to like Tata, you know, those crazy Japanese toilets that like talk to you. Yeah. So like their business is basically building the parts for them and they started from literally nothing, like maybe like the equivalent of 50 bucks in their pocket just to start a little fruit stand. So really smart people can come from anywhere. It doesn't matter your, your background, your education, uh, you know, it's all about whether or not you've got that stick it to itness. You know, are you ready to kind of take it on? Are you ready to do what, what it takes to kind of survive? And are you building value for the people that are around you? And, you know, a funny weird habit from that is now my mom has very particular taste on how her fruit is cut. And that's just a remnant of that time when they were working so hard, just trying to, trying to like, um, you know, pay for rent and just have food to eat. But um, it really teaches you something about, about people and, you know, giving giving value to the community is ultimately what's going to keep you around if you're just taking and taking and taking that's not a sustainable model people are not going to want to follow you but you're giving people really like that and that's with everything and i love that story because so often people will see you where you're at now understand what it took to get there and so i love from the fruit stand to boom i mean that's I mean, it didn't happen overnight. Like, let's be clear. Like, he started this little fruit stand when he was maybe like 14, 13 years old, just for survival reasons. My mom worked in a pool hall as the scorekeeper. All she did was like take take the score for people when she was like eight or nine. Instead of like going home after school to play, she went to work. So, you know, those sort of values stick with you. And so, you know, growing up, yeah, there's a reason why, you know, uh, I feel like immigrant kids feel like you have to work super hard. Your parents are giving you crap because you need to get that A plus, right? Because they know that the world is going to demand that of you. They're going to want that from you and they're going to want that at the lowest possible price. And, and there's like a, a million people behind you who are going to try to do that. If you can sort of suck it up, you know, pay your dues, work hard, eventually you get to climb that ladder and get to a place where you can actually influence change and prevent people from, from suffering in the same way that you have. And that's really meaningful, you know. And are there things, you know, to get that nest egg, that to start that you had to give up? Because, you know, America is full of 
um, instant gratification. Yeah. And, and you have to, I always tell people, follow the Dave Ramsey plan. And they're like, well, he told me I can't go buy my new car on credit. So what are the things that you had to give up to do your passion? Um, I had to give up my very cushy a job at Google, uh, you know, with the free food and, um, you know, like a great title. I, I had the privilege of managing uh, multiple teams on, on both coasts, both on the West Coast and on the East Coast. I was a, a Delta Platinum card holder, you know, because I had to fly so much. Um, and I, that was a very luxurious life, but it was also a very hard life. I I had just had my kids and, you know, I don't know about other folks, but as a new mom, you feel really guilty going to work. You feel really guilty because other moms are guilting you. You feel guilty because you're spending time with customers now with your kids. Um, and then one day, you know, that price just became too high. Yes, the salary was amazing. Yes, the benefits were amazing, but I missed my family. My daughters, they would cry when I got home because they're just like, we never see you, mama. Like, when are you going to come hang out with us? I want you to read me a bedtime story. Those are the moments that break you, right? Honestly, as a parent, you're like, oh my God, am I just like the worst human being on earth? But you're not, you're trying to, you're trying to provide for your family. So for me, it was about making sure like, can I take care of my kids? Um, and then, you know, do I have enough to kind of save in order to build the business and get it to a place where it becomes self-sustaining? And I think we're kind of getting to that point now, but it was a really hard decision. Um, but these are the decisions of somebody who's, you know, in their, in their late thirties, right? You have a very different decision-making model in your twenties and even, even different, more different when you're a teenager. But, um, the point is that you, you just need to know simple addition and subtraction. And I'm going to tell you why, if you want to build a business, you need to buy something that is at a very low cost to you. And you need to sell that for a higher value, like a higher profit margin. And that's it. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the basis of the math, right? You want to, people talk about, you need to be an engineer and do all these other things. No, you need to just know the value of money. You need to know the value of the service that you're providing and the value of your time. And as long as you continue to maintain that positive margin, just you're making a little bit more than you're spending, you're going to get there. And it might take days, might take weeks, might take years, but as long as you keep being sort of financially responsible and not spending money frivolously, that's when you start to get smart. That's when you start to build that nest egg. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount of money. I made mean, my very first investment. I was, uh, I was nine years old and my parents had given me allowance money and I had saved it forever. When I finally got to a thousand dollars, I invested in the stock market. That was like the first thing I did. And then, uh, and then four years later, I quadrupled my money and I did that. I did it again and I did it again. And so that's kind of how I got into like stock and investing and stuff. And I'll bet now currently I do real estate. But it started with just that, that, that knowledge, like, hey, I have this much money, I need it to grow to the size, and then I'm going to have a plan when it gets to this other size. So you just start setting up milestones for yourself. And then eventually, you know, you start to get that fitness in, in, in financial uh, management and fiscal responsibility. Now, everybody's curious to know what was that sock that you invested in at nine years old and what platform did you use? Because you didn't oh, have Robinhood back then. So. Oh, my God. No, I had to do it all. I had to, like, call the broker myself. And he was like, I need your father to be on the call. You can't even, like, take the like, – you can't even make places order because you're underage. I don't remember. Honestly, it was a medical – I think it was a medical stock. It was pharmaceutical. And I think that's kind of very reflective of kind of where we have kind of come full circle now. But the point is I, I got the first financial report – and I didn't quite understand all of it, but I knew two things. I saw revenue. I'm like, revenue means making money. And then I saw expenses. I'm like, that's losing money. And then I looked at the perspectives on like, what were they building? What were they doing? And I thought like, hey, that's some really cool stuff. 
Now, a 10-year-old doesn't really have a great deal of knowledge or information, but I looked at two other companies that were also in pharmacy and, and realized like, hey, this sounds way cooler than this other thing. I may not be a scientist, but I kind of knew like, you know, what is attractive or what is interesting or what's different. And that was enough to kind of help me make that decision. And, and that's kind of something I've taken through life. That, I mean, that's still kind of the same way I pick stock today. It's still the same way I determine, you know, real estate uh, properties. Like, hey, why would I buy this property versus other property? Which one has, uh, you know, lower taxes? Or which one has a lower maintenance cost? Which one already had its roof replaced? You know, so it's just about thinking, thinking through the problem, figuring out like, hey, what's going to go south on me? And is there, is there a plan B for that? Like, how can I defend against that? No, that, that is great game. And that's what we, we, we love to hear. So from having the idea of bees until opening it um, and, you know, going full, full time, um, what was the time period for that? Um, I basically took like four months off in between. I wanted to spend some time with the family. I also wanted to work on the business model. I had several friends, you know, who are trusted advisors, but just really smart at what they do, kind of kick it and say like, yeah, Vivian, that's kind of dumb. You don't want to do that. And it was like, okay, great. Well, like, how do I, how do I prove that this is the right model? So it required a crap ton of research. I must have researched over 500 different business models or companies in the same space before I decided, yeah, this is the right business model. This is the right financial model. Um, this is our go-to-market plan. This is how we're going to present our messaging. Uh, these are the partners we need to get. And then, oh yeah, we need to go run out and build it. Okay, who on the team is going to build this? You, you build that part because you're a database guy. I'm going to build this person, a front-end person. You're going to build this other place because, you know, we need to get this thing thrown up on AWS so it scales with everybody, you know? So and then it becomes an, an, uh, an issue of tactics. But tactics is kind of like the last thing. We're just going to make sure the plan makes sense and that you've actually thought through all the things that are going to go south because it will go south. It can't go south. Everyone's going to want it to go south except for you. And you're going to have to just keep it, keep being on your toes and, and keep, uh, you know, Duck and move, you know, duck and weave, you know, you got to move, you got to move with whatever, whatever life throws at you. And, and being in Seattle, which is a just a, a, a mecca of, you know, venture capital and angel investors and, you know, startup week is the week you see everybody and like, hey, I saw you last year. Um, did you go after venture capital or get any angel investors um, when starting? So so they courted me. So it was actually really super surprising. So after we turned on the system and it was trying to like find leads, find partners and all that, I started getting hit up on LinkedIn. People just started messaging me directly. I said, Hey, I heard about what you did. I would love you to pitch our company. And it was really, it was kind of shocking because I had no pitch deck. I wasn't really planning on raising money. But so I called this my, my round COVID. So after like, I think four reached out to me, Finally, I decided, okay, I guess I need to really create a deck now because if enough people keep banging on my door, I don't want to look stupid in front of these super smart, super well-funded folks who are well-connected. And so eventually I had to like create a deck. But it, it starts with, you know, having something so worth talking about that people actually come to you, right? If you're creating something that's already been done before, you're trying to rip off somebody else's idea, people aren't going to follow you. They're going to be like, oh, I've already seen this. This has been done before. But if you're doing something fundamentally different that hurts their brain, they're going to come ask you like, well, why the hell are you doing it that way? And that's when you get the really interesting conversations. So don't be afraid to be different. There's a whole bunch of folks who think like, they tell little girls like, don't be bossy. Don't be trying to get your own way. No, go be bossy. Go be, I call that executive leadership skills. Be as different as you can be. Do it in a respectful way, of course, but be different. Absolutely. My, my wife, her um, favorite song to play for our daughters is um, the Khalees censored version without too short, I'm bossy. Um, because she that she tries to push that, yeah, um, those days, especially women, uh, you know, oh, bossy is, you know, 
they, there's another B word they use. And she's like, no, that's just knowing what you want. And, and I really like that because I don't like, I, I, I hate any type of stereotypes until they're, yeah. but just, you know, think outside the box. I, I don't really subscribe to, you know, what people say, but you believe in, yeah, but not like that. And I can yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's hard because I think, you know, uh, I, growing up, you know, in the, in the eighties, like it was really hard. Like everyone's just always sort of expects girls to get along, be nurturing. It's okay to cry. You know, if you want to be, you want to be a supporting role, boys are kind of taught to compete and fight and try to be the best. And so, you know, now that we're adults, you know, you sort of get to hear that bias in the workplace and people are like, oh, are you really being a good team player? Whereas if a guy did the same thing, they might be like, wow, he's being really assertive. He's, he's showing executive leadership and, and like taking what he wants. So, you know, I think we all kind of have to take a seat back and be like, hey, wait a second. Like, why, why the double standard? You know, I would want, I have two daughters. I would want both of them to be as ambitious as they want to be and go be the leaders. And, you know, it was the funniest thing when my daughter was two years old, I got this hilarious phone call from her daycare. They sent me this picture and my daughter was basically wearing a bunch of craft material, looked, dressed up like a robot. And this was really weird to me because it was supposed to be ocean week where they were talking about sea creatures and stuff. And so the teacher then proceeded to tell me, yes, your daughter apparently convinced 20 other bebés in this classroom to dress up like robots and go beep, 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 I'm a robot in the middle of our ocean class. And I have no idea what took it over, but then they had to spend the next three hours trying to get these kids to not be robots. And I was like, oh my God, she's going to be such an amazing leader someday. It's such a great photo. I should post it somewhere. <laughs> you, you should. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere with the climate because a lot of times with women, and then, you know, if, if, if like they're doing Kamala Harris right now, who I, I, I'm, I'm not for any politician, we work with them, but you know, oh, it's a black woman, she's gonna be angry. And for, for some reason, people think, and I've even heard people who are dating people, oh, she's for an Asian woman, she's kind of aggressive. And I said, do you not know that? Yeah, no, <laughs> like, not cool. <laughs> what did you expect? just to kind of just go along to, to get along and I and I don't like that because growing up in the Bay Area you know everybody and I'm like everybody's kind of the same and crazy and you know ready to, to get down do you get that like in the the corporate world where people might assume oh she's Asian she's gonna be just you know oh my god oh my god uh there was this one time I was a keynote speaker at like a security conference and some guy literally walked up to me handed me a dirty coffee cup because I thought it was the help and then got shocked later when you know I got up on the stage and started presenting yeah it it sucks uh if you're a woman or a minority or both you know um, it can be really hard going up in, a, in a, an industry that is definitely not that, you know, technology certainly is primarily at this moment, primarily male, uh, definitely primarily Caucasian, but we're starting to see this emerging wave of, you know, of Asian, you know, Indian, Chinese, um, you know, I will say like there was only like two black people uh, in my teams over the last like 10 years, like it's been very rare um, and, and no, they didn't get to ascend to like a high managerial title, which to me was crazy because they were like super amazingly smart. Um, it's really hard and people are going to judge you 10 times more harshly, but you kind of have to deal with it to the point where you can rise in the organization and really affect that change. And yes, it is a very tough battle because they will treat other people with a, with a different bias and you kind of just have to deal.
you know, um, and you just need to know that it's not you, it's them, but it takes time. It, you know, Rome was not built in a day, uh, you know, uh, racial equality is not going to happen in a day. And we you know we've been fighting a graver for a really long time. And even the fact that we're on this podcast, you know, I'm Chinese, Kellen, you're black. That's cool. I love that. I think that's amazing that we can actually have these conversations and not even, not even worry about it. But yes, I mean, I can tell you for the longest time, many of my, of my managers wouldn't let me engage in public speaking events because they didn't think I was prepared, even though I had more experience than the person that they actually sent. And it's hard, but you know, you have to go and work with the people that you want to work with. And, and trust me, the change will happen. You just got to keep up. You just got to keep working at it. Well, I hope when Google comes back and sees everything that you have and they say, hey, can we buy this for whatever billions, if it's, you know, even for sale, you're able to give them that. Because I found that, you know, I was part of here, Seattle in Seattle, and I, I went to a HBCU and so did my wife. And, you know, we see everybody in the sciences and, and the different fields. And you're like, you know, the recruiters would come. But to me, it's not they don't come. I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of like you come, I've known people who do, you know, internships, but keep coming back because those people do very well because they know they're graded at a, a different standard. And if not, they're going to get rid of them like that. I mean, yeah. one of those things, either you know it or you don't. But um, I mean, I have so many, I, I have said so many things in Seattle to say there's a better way of doing this. But I find and that sometimes when they come to the black community, they go get Herman Cain instead of, oh. going get, you know, some somebody who's like really informed and you go get the Herman Cain's at Zillow. Zillow has one. <laughs> they have a Herman Cain and they think, oh, yeah, we're going to give them one hundred thousand dollars and they're going to go take the black skiers out in Colorado. And it's like, no, you, you got to know how to pick your people because you know every minority has folks who will sell out for money um with bees being able to you know get your cpa or even find security how do you um i mean can it expand to anything are you going to stay in like a certain lane um that's a great strategic question. I think, you know, the business developer in me always thinks, you know, niche is a good place to start, good place to, you know, get your foothold. Um, but really for us, the sky's the limit. It's just about being objective of, you know, does it make sense to go after this vertical right now? So I'm going to say it depends, you know, and I think where we're at right now, we're sort of getting our CLAs where we are predominantly, in, you know, in technology and marketing and outreach, but, you know, we've got finance and lawyers banging on our doors now being like, Hey, I, I heard about you guys. This is really interesting. Uh, you know, I was not doing it for me. Avo is this marketplace for, for lawyers. Yeah. It took them like, uh, you know, 37 days to get back to me. I'm like, wow, that's a long time. We would have called you back like the next day. And they're like, Hey, here's a lawyer. It may not be the right one, but we'll, we, as, as a system starts to work, we will eventually identify the right one for you. You know? So I think it's the fact that we're, we're open to be disruptive. We want people to come and disrupt us. We want, people to bring their best and, and to really show what they're about. And that's really how you move, you know, how you move and, and, and evolve, right? If we're getting worse, then things are only going to get sadder. You know, people just need to kind of keep bringing their A game and we're going to keep throwing them opportunities until, until they win. Now, 
this is even more of a for the future question, but do you think that you'll expand outside of America? Because for some reason I'm seeing Bees Africa. I see the logo already. And well, I mean, all of our founders are not from the U.S. Uh, I'm from Canada. Uh, we've got two from Egypt, one from Haiti, uh, one that's is from uh, from Hawaii, but you know her folks are, are Korean. Um, and right now, one of our business developers is sitting sitting on the European continent, right? So, is there opportunity for international expansion? I believe so, and I think that um, you know we just need to be really cautious about creating that international marketplace that just drives prices to zero. Like it cannot it cannot do that, right? Um, because that's not a sustainable model either. People need to make money in that it's going to uh, that actually matches up with their cost of living. But I think we can open up opportunities for folks. You know, if you if you really are cost bound, giving people avenues to be able to find you know talented vendors at a reasonable price point should still be a goal, right? You know, I think it would actually be really cool if the world could if, if the world's um, cost of living could actually deflate by twenty five percent and make it more affordable for everybody. That actually might be a really great outcome, honestly. Because you know, I don't know about you guys, but out here, a pound of apples can cost like seven dollars, which is, to me is just kind of crazy. Like, I, I, corn costs like a buck twenty-five an ear. Like, how is that even a thing, right? So, you know, I think we just need to be good about uh, leveraging remote services and making sure that people are paid a reasonable amount, but not such an exorbitant amount that it becomes unaffordable. I mean, even out in Seattle, I remember looking for a, a different apartment, and it was. Um, it was, you know, a two bedroom and it was one of the newer ones. And they're like $6,000 a month, two bedrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's the, that was the average before COVID. Oh yeah. Downtown Seattle is such a ripoff. It's like up there with like San Francisco and like New York pricing. But I think that's going to come down a little, um, especially now that nobody's in the downtown core. Like people are just leaving. They're moving to the suburbs, they're getting big pieces of land to be far away from each other and, you know, enjoy the fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how that, you know, it's always a, a shift. Um, but no, that that's awesome with it because in, in Africa, I mean, you know, things are can be difficult to find, but once you find who you need to find, and I, I might be here in Florida, but my soul is it still in Africa just because it's just so much freedom and I don't have to worry about so many things. But I, I could just see it um, expanding, so I really hope that you know it, it grows and i wish things were cheaper here yeah corn isn't that um expensive but um things have risen and i've lived in every part of the united states and and and, and, and talk about canada are you from vancouver no i'm from montreal so i grew up speaking french actually okay okay because i get because vancouver is more expensive than you know seattle and you're like my gosh a million dollars no. I just used to go to Vancouver when I wanted dim sum really badly. Dim sum in, in Seattle is like meh, but like Vancouver, it's like legit, you know, uh, when, when Hong Kong uh, went back to China because, you know, England had to give it up. Um, a lot of those, a lot of us moved over to Vancouver because it's one of the closest, it's either that or Sydney, like the closest Commonwealth port. Um, so yeah, I love visiting Vancouver. It's beautiful. Food's amazing. Um, and when I go there, I don't actually have to speak English. I can just speak Chinese. I can speak Mandarin all day long and I don't have a problem. So it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting little shift. Like if I want to get into like Asia without getting on a plane, I just drive across the border or else I could have. Now, these days, I'm pretty sure the Canadian government doesn't want us to come by. But, you know, hopefully when things are to let up, I'll be happy to go back and visit. I have a book, a YouTuber, um, just were part of the Kickstarter and he can't even get his books. He's Canadian. The road chose me and he cannot get his books across the border, you know, legally. There's some other ways. What? That, 
Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. And he's the nicest guy. But he was like, I can't get my and if he did get his books, he'd have to do some, you know, other type of way, or it would cost so much money that his kickstart, it wouldn't even make sense. But there, you know, with who's in office right now, who knows what is going on? Um, you know, because at, at, we might not even be allowed to come back in the country if you leave. You just don't know. With, oh, um, that, that seriously happened. Uh, so there was a, a, a great um, general contractor that we know. And uh, 20, he's, I think he had like 25 guys in his company. Almost all of them are from Mexico. And they were like out on vacation when they then the border got closed. And they haven't been able to come back since. So they've been, they've been marooned in Mexico for a couple months. And they're like trying desperately to come back so they can finish all the work. These guys, they fix like, I don't know, maybe... 6,000 houses a year like they're really big and they're really good and like his team has been destroyed because of these crazy immigration policies and these border policies it's really nasty like what's happening right now yeah and and unfortunately it's going to get probably worse but with your success that you are having what is a community give back that you're doing or that you want to do in the future well, one thing that really sort of struck home was, uh, I don't know if you heard about the, Be uh, the Beirut explosion. To me, that just seems horrible. Imagine right now that the only hospital in your city gets obliterated because of some, you know, crazy, you know, oversight in the middle of COVID. Like, how crazy is that? So, you know, if folks are looking for a way to kind of help, help the community at large, you know, I would say even just look across the pond. You know, um, I think there's been a lot of misconception and, and bad blood about uh, people in the Middle East and the Muslim community, but they're great people. You know, they're, they're people just like you and I, they have families like you and I. So there was this one really crazy video of this bride. She's super beautiful in her wedding gown. There, there was the, the videographer was just taking this quick panoramic view of her and then the explosion happened. Imagine that happened to you at your own wedding. How horrible would that be? And the fact that the people that you know and you love and their home and their, their entire community has been destroyed with this crazy, uh, you know, explosion. Like, uh, I can't even understand. So uh, after, this, after this call, you know, I'm happy to send you maybe a couple links. I would love it if the community could just donate generously. There's, there's um, stuff with the Red Cross of Lebanon. There's stuff with uh, helping kids. There's stuff with um, education and sending over like laptops and, and materials and stuff so like they can start to rebuild. Um, but the community has really been disrupted. You know, it was a major part of their seaport that's been destroyed and, uh, you know, major parts of their city infrastructure has been completely obliterated. So please help. And, and, and the Lebanese are very friendly people. I, I, I remember being in France, it was about last train out and somebody killed themselves, jumped in front of the train and oh. everything's just going off. And I don't know what's going on. Uh, my French is, it's not there. I just try <laughs> wherever I go. If I'm in Cameroon, my wife is from Cameroon. So okay. wherever I'm at, but I wasn't married then. And I don't even think we were, we might've been dating, but uh, you know, I, I've had a Lebanese beautiful woman walk me to my hotel room, wouldn't take anything, didn't want anything. And I'm just like, every Lebanese I've ever met is, is nice. But when you talk about building, like from Mexico, Mexicans and the Chinese know how to build quick. I mean, we saw China build a hospital in record time. I wish the world would just allow, if you're great at something, come on and, and, and you know, do, do you. <laughs> Yeah, free trade is really important. Um, you know, with, with respect to China, you know, uh, 
it, they're not afraid to brute force a problem. They're not afraid to just throw everything in the kitchen sink at the problem. I think that's great when you just need to kind of get going, but that also like relates to some sustainability issues, right? But they like, they like, to, they like to try, you know, and I think they're not afraid to. They also have a huge labor market that they can leverage and, um, you know, so I think, I think they should do, they should definitely do them, right? But that's true of anybody, right? Find your strength and really sort of leverage that. Don't be afraid. Um, there will always be somebody who will appreciate it. And then maybe you'll get some naysayers too, but, you know, forget about those guys, you know, just, 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 just do the things that you're really good at. Well, you guys, I don't want to give you a game overload. We've given you a lot of game that you can take and really help grow your business in, in multiple ways. I want to thank, thank you, Vivian, for coming on and just sharing all of this. But, you know, you can only give people so much and we can always do this again. We'll take our conversation offline. You guys be blessed. Make sure you like, share, subscribe. You will see bees and any links in the link um, that Vivian was talking about to help out the people because somebody else is hurting more than you. The links will be below in the description box. You guys be blessed. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit DiversifiedGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.